This podcast with Lydia Dogdale is brought to you by Howard Brown, author of a new book entitled, Yes is More, Tangible and Timeless Ways to Differentiate Yourself from Your Competitors. Please listen to podcast number 799, where Howard and Greg speak about how Howard was able to succeed in business by building, growing, and selling companies. He believes in loyalty, reputation, and team effort culture, which lead his team to introduce many firsts in the industry and develop a process called One Solution Cell. I know you're going to enjoy this interesting and engaging interview with a great entrepreneur who impressively built and sold three commodity businesses that were competitors to big supply stores. If you want to learn more about Howard and his book, Yes is More, please visit his website at www.yesismorebook.com. That's Y-E-S-I-S-M-O-R-E-B-O-O-K.com. Thanks for listening and now for a featured podcast, please listen to Greg's interview with Lydia Dugdale about her new book, The Lost Art of Dying. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And today, joining us from New York is Lydia Dugdale, MD. And Lydia has written a new book called The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom. Good day to you, Lydia. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on the show and thanks for the time to speak with us about something that uh, you and I talked about in our little interview before the show, um, which was just really how important it is to get back to some of the things that you speak about in the book. And I'm going to let our listeners know just a little bit about you. Um, Dr. Dugdale, MD, M-A-R, is Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at Columbia University. Prior to her 2019 move to Columbia, she was Associate Director of the Program for Biomedical Ethics and Founding Co-Director of the Program for Medicine, Spirituality, and Religion at Yale School of Medicine. She is an internal medicine primary care doctor and medical ethicist, ethicist. Uh, Her first book, Dying in the 21st Century, was an MIT press in 2015 and provided theoretical uh, grounding for current book. And she lives with her husband and daughters in New York City. And she was telling me that the weather is great there. So, uh, Lydia, why don't we just dig right in? Because this is really a, a very interesting book and a topic that I think a lot of people veer from talking about um, death in particular is something that I think a lot of people avoid and you even talk about it. And you mentioned in the book that our culture has overly medicalized death, making it institutional and sterile, prolonged by unnecessary resuscitations and other intrusive interventions. And these practices extend the suffering and strip us of our dignity. Um, How do you believe the death process should change, and how do we get others 
to really move their viewpoint about the process of death? Thanks, Greg. Yeah, that's a great question to start off with. I think it's worth stating up front that I'm not anti-hospital. I am a medical doctor and I take care of patients in the hospital and in the outpatient clinical setting. And there's great, great benefit for people from, from receiving care. At the same time, what has concerned me over the years of practicing medicine is meeting and caring for and hearing the stories from patients who have ended up experiencing their dying process in the hospital in a way that either they or their family members completely disdained and wished would have been different. And so that's what I'm, I'm writing to raise awareness about. The, the premise of the book really is that if we can give attention to our finitude, that is to our finiteness, over the course of our lifetimes, then we can also prepare for death in a way that will help us make better decisions, not only about how we live and what matters to us, but about how we die. And so that's what I've written the book to address. Well, and it does a really thorough job of that. And it tells a lot of stories, you know, and what I like about it is the stories that you tell from a medical doctor's standpoint. And you tell a very compelling story about Mr. Turner and your resuscitation of him. Um, Can you tell the stories to the listeners and, and comment that his daughter's what they actually said to you about the DNR, do not resuscitate. Because I think the important point in here is some people will go to great odds to save somebody older, younger, whatever age it is. And, you know, this person had been suffering from cancer for quite some time. So it'd be great if you'd tell the story because it really kind of lays the framework for the even the rest of the book. So Mr. Turner was a patient, and again, I, I changed names and I changed identifying details to protect my patient's privacy, so I want to say that up front. But um, as I write about him in the book, Mr. Turner was an elderly gentleman who had stage four prostate cancer, and he was very cachectic, so sort of think very kind of skeletal type of, of a build at this point. He was very wasted from his cancer, and he was in his 80s. And This was when I was a trainee, and as a trainee, as a medical resident, we are the ones responsible for running the the code blues, as it's called often in the popular media, uh, when when a patient dies to to do the resuscitative efforts. Uh, And so I was was on call, um, and there was a code blue called in the hospital, and we rushed, and, and, you know, we rushed to the cancer floor, which was where it was called. And we found this very emaciated um, elderly gentleman, now dead, that I was just meeting for the first time. And, uh, and he was a full code. And that meant that his wish, or at least his family's wish, as his medical decision makers, was that he would receive full resuscitative efforts. Now, that, that is very sensible um, in many, many circumstances. But when patients 
are really at the very end of life, and especially patients whose bodies are just full of cancer, um, as was the case with this gentleman, we know full well that resuscitation at best will jumpstart the heart for mm, maybe a few hours, but it's not going to restore meaningful life, and it certainly won't do anything about the cancer, right? So we resuscitated this gentleman, and um, and we were able to get his pulse back, and he was transferred to the intensive care unit. And in the meantime, we called his family, and his daughters came in. It was the middle of the night. And as we sat there, um, and this was something that it it was it was really quite uh, quite gruesome to resuscitate this gentleman um, because he had so much cancer even in his ribs it was um, it, it, it had a big impact on all of us and and so in our medical opinion we didn't want to have to put him through the suffering again but we were quite sure his heart would stop again and most likely that night and so I was trying to very gently talk to his daughters about this and and they said to me, look, doctor, we appreciate everything you've done. We're Christians. We believe in divine healing. We believe in miracles. And uh, we want you to do everything you can to keep him alive. Uh, so if his heart stops again, by all means, do what you just did again. And it happens to uh, be that his heart did stop again, uh, not even a couple of hours later. We resuscitated him again. We were able to achieve a pulse again. So he was, you know, brought back to life. And then he died yet a third time that same night. Um, and that time, again, the family really wanted us to bring him back. And we did our best. But we were unable to reinstate the pulse that third time. But I tell that story to highlight just how complicated it is for us as a pluralistic society to think about our comfort with death. And the reason why I, I put in the comments that the daughters had made to me is because even as very religious people, and, and you know, we often think, well, religious people are the ones who believe in heaven and believe in the afterlife. And shouldn't they be more comfortable with death? Um, yeah. But even very religious people, we find um, uh, actually the, the people who report the most support from highly religious communities are the ones most likely to choose to have aggressive end-of-life measures and to die in an ICU. So it's, there's a bit of a paradox there. Yeah, quite quite so. And, you know, I think sometimes it's people who have veered from religion to more spirituality that are easier with this. And, and we'll get into that a little bit later in this podcast. But, you know, as people's viewpoints can expand. Um, you would have thought, you know, that Christians would have been okay with that concept. And maybe some would have been. Um, in mm -hmm. this case, his daughters weren't. And, and I think that's part of the issue. It's kind of an individual thing, the comfort that people have. You know, if you have a, a DNR and it's written, then that's great. But obviously, this gentleman didn't have a do not resuscitate order. He had an order to continue to resuscitate him. Now, you mentioned in the book uh, that you seek to explain and revive the, and pardon me if I mispronounce this, I'm probably going to have you pronounce it, Eris Moriarty. Is that right? The two? The Ars Moriendi. Yep. It's okay. Latin. Ars Moriendi. Okay. 
Ars Moriendi. I never took a Latin class, and if I did, I totally <laughs> failed it. Um, there are two Latin books referred to as The Art of Dying from the 15th century. Why is what those books say and in those texts so important to you? Because this book kind of centers around this. Yeah, so so these books developed, uh, as you said, in the early 15th century, but they developed in response to an outbreak of the bubonic plague that struck Western Europe in the mid-14th century. And historians vary in their estimates, but perhaps as many as two-thirds of Europeans died from that plague, which just destroyed the social fabric. And so the people who survived were very concerned that their loved ones had not perhaps been buried properly or received last rites or been attended to in ways that might have, you know, some uh, long lasting effect on their souls, right? Again, this was a very religious, um, very almost uh, enchanted view of life at the time. And so there was a real cry, a, a request from the authorities at the time to come up with some sort of way to help the laity, the lay people, the common people prepare for death. Because if it's not another outbreak of the plague, who knows? It could have been war. It could have been um, famine. But something would threaten death. And so, uh, you know, the social authority at that, in that, at that point in Western Europe was really the church. And the church, um, I, you know, I'm not a Catholic church historian, but in the late uh, 1300s, early 1400s, there were several different popes. There were two and then later three men simultaneously claiming to be pope. So the church was kind of in a bit of a mess. It wasn't in a position to do anything about it, about this kind of need of the people. But when the, they finally pulled themselves together, one of the first publications that is felt to be related to some of the uh, church authority, although we don't know the original author, uh, were these handbooks on the preparation for death. These Ars Moriendi or Art of Dying handbooks. And they really spurred a whole genre of literature that was wildly popular for more than 500 years, picked up by all different religious and then even non-religious groups, spread all across Europe, translated into many different languages, adapted, tweaked. Uh, they came to the United States by the 1800s. If you were from a good family, the preparation, from the preparation for death was just something that you talked about. It was a part of being brought up well. Today we might do, you know, talk about estate planning or your retirement account. Well, now, or now, then, I should say, then uh, this idea that how we live over the course of our lives affects how we die really uh, caught the public imagination. Mm -hmm. And so when I came across this body of literature, I thought, oh, wow, this is something that did not just stay in one particular community. It was widely embraced. It was adopted and adapted across belief systems, across cultures and languages. And uh, it, it essentially empowered the non-professional, right? So whether the non-clergy person or the non-medical doctor, that sort of, it, it empowered all people to anticipate their finitude or their finiteness, their mortality, mm -hmm. and to prepare. And that preparation was to take place over a lifetime. Well, I actually think uh, it, when you look at some of the old texts and, you know, our 
spiritual. Obviously, you go through the centuries. Um, Christianity kind of dominated in big periods of time. And I, I think that that leaning toward that one direction, but people were very open to other, um, how do you want to say, ways to look at death and dying. And I think that's obvious in those works. And, you know, you use a great uh, story about finitude, and this is about Mrs. Campella to illustrate the resistance to acknowledge it. Um, and I just want to ask, why is that part of the human condition that we want to hang on to even what might be a miserable existence versus what you speak about in the book is dying well, because it, you know, you see this happen so many times. I mean, um, it, it isn't just, it repeats itself every day. You see it as a physician um, and it's a challenge. And we're going to get into asking some of the questions about physician aided death as well. But uh, why do you think, as our human condition, we're just, our body just wants to hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I think it makes sense that that's the way we're wired, right? Creatures are wired to survive. Um, there's that evolutionary drive to, to survive. I mean, it's instinctual. I, I mean, you watch, you know, animals in the wild and, and that, that mother bear sure is protective of those cubs, right? So there's a way in which we are not we're going to stave off death. That's, that's written into who we are. We're going to stave off death. And it's, it's hard when we don't experience death regularly, um, especially in the way that society has developed over the last hundred years. We don't have to see death. We went from having very few hospitals in the mid-1800s to having more than 6,000 by, you know, the early part of the 20th century. And that's, you know, more or less slightly higher than the number today. So we've, we've in a sense, quarantined death to the hospitals or to the nursing homes. We're not seeing children die or babies die like we used to. And so it's become very difficult. And when we're already sort of biologically programmed to resist death, right, then when we don't see it, uh, it's hard to make sense or to want to think about it. Now, mm -hmm. you, you might say that coronavirus has, has changed that. Um, although our response, our public response to coronavirus has not been so much to, you know, ponder our mortality and to prepare well for death, but it's been to, also it's been to resist, right? And, I'm, and again, oh, yeah. I'm not saying that we, we want to invite death. Um, I, I don't commend death. Death does create holes in, in communities and it, 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 it's very disruptive and destructive. Um, at the same time, you can see that when you live in a society as people did in the late Middle Ages up to 100 years ago where death was so common, it wasn't really an option. So you better prepare. I mean, it was either prepare or don't prepare, but it's going to happen. And that was a part of your reality. And now we are really able to live in a, in a mindset that it's not really part of our reality. And then suddenly we wake up, you know, very late in life, perhaps in the ICU, perhaps with some other disease and realize we've never really thought about this. And those are the conversations I've had time and time again with my patients. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think even when you're removed from it, because like you just said, people are removed from it so much. Um, you know, you hear these stories about uh, in New Jersey where the morgues are just full with people of opioid over overdoses and deaths, mm -hmm. so much so that they had to build more racks to put the bodies, right? 
when people hear stories like that, they don't, I don't think they relate when somebody says, Hey, we're losing a hundred people in this County every day as a result of opioid deaths mm-hmm. um, or something like that. That's tough. And then you tell a story in the book about two men, Mr. Plaza and Mr. Rodriguez. And as you said, you've changed the names to protect the innocent, but who work for Queens County administrators. And these are the guys that show up at the death of people who they've died alone, meaning they've died alone. They may have been there. And as I was reading the book, it is a bit um, unearthing to hear the story because, you know, the bodies have decayed, they're in hazmat suits, um, whatever. And you tell their story and what they learned about dying alone, because this is the part in the book about community. Can you tell their story a bit and then why it's so important um, from what you are accenting in the book about community, to to have a community of support? Yeah, so this was a story that was actually told um, in the New York Times, and that's that's where I first read it. Uh, and I do credit the journalist who did it because it's a, a, a brilliant um, story. But many, many people die alone uh, every year, and especially in major metropolises. It's, it's a problem in New York City. It's a problem in Tokyo, Japan. It's a problem in many places. Um, and often uh, people realize there's been a death because of the stench of the decaying body. So these two gentlemen, Mr. Plaza and Mr. Rodriguez, they're hired by the local government in Queens to go in and essentially uh, not do the actual cleaning, but to recover items that may be helpful in identifying a next of kin. So they'll first they go in and they look for documents, they look for, you know, uh, maybe a, a computer or a telephone that would have names of potential family members, and they do their best to identify anyone who might still be in regular contact with this person or a family or a long lost family member, actual blood relative. And the other aspect of their work is to collect items of value that would be essentially auctioned off for the estate. And then the, the government is um, the local government is essentially calculating what the estate value is and then trying to give that money to family members. But to think about this as one's employment is incredible and and it's really had an effect on the men who do this work. Um, so, you know, Mr. Plaza, he has decided for himself that he never wants to die alone. He does not want to die like these these people whose bodies he recovers and whose items he recovers. Uh, and so what he's taken to do is to send inspirational electronic messages to a whole bunch of his community members and he sends them out every day and the idea is that if you don't get a message from mr plaza one day that means he's died and that means you better come looking for him because he doesn't want you to come find him weeks later when the body's decomposing um, and for his his co-worker mr rodriguez he's decided that he's going to kind of maximize his life the sort of carpe diem mentality he's going to live each day as if it's his last and so what does that mean? I mean, if we, if we really were to take that seriously, it's going to change what we value, how we spend our time, what relationships we invest in, um, how much we work, uh, whether we travel or stay home. And, and 
Uh, and so, so that's kind of the effect that this work has had on them. It it's definitely a fascinating story, and it, it really intrigued me. The whole uh, part about this, I I didn't know there were even people that did that. Number one, um, and number two, the fact that both of these men's lives have been changed so much by what they're doing is so important. Um, you say in the book, "Why does it matter where we die?" And I think a lot of people, Lydia, think about that. You know, it's uh, you say dead bodies don't care whether they lie in a bedroom or a refrigerated morgue. Why are we so fixated on what happens to us before death and the fact that most people would rather die at home? I, I, I'll use a personal story. My mother wanted to die at home. So in hospice, there was five days um, and it, it's so much what you hear from most people. All right, they're going to send them home. Their hospice is going to come in. People are going to monitor them until they actually make their passing. Why is that so? Yeah, I think there's something about what is comfortable to us, what we know, our sense of connectedness to family. It's at home is a constant. So even if we have moved, you know, multiple times throughout our lives, there's something about, uh, you know, whether it's particular furniture, or particular pieces of artwork, or things that make our help make our home feel like it's ours, even if the actual structure has changed because we've had to move. Um, and it's that sense of comfort that the home provides. Uh, the the memories of who has shared that home that I think is part of this motivation for why so many people say, that's where I want to die. I'm dying at home. And you're right. As you said, you know, the dead body doesn't care where it's sitting, right? But it's that what's leading up to my death, you know, and this anticipation that it could very well not be very comfortable. I could be, you know, sick. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that someplace where I'm not comfortable. I want to be in a, in a space that's as, as comfortable to me as possible. So I think that that motivates it. And yet, mm-hmm. at the same time, um, most people die in institutions, right, as, as we've seen. The vast majority die in an institution, whether it's a hospital or a hospice or a nursing home, um, something on the order, I want to say, of, of 75, 80 percent of people. So we, even though most of us want one thing, most of us get the other thing. And yet, at the same time, as I, as I spell out in the book, there are very good reasons uh, why it might just make sense to to die in an institution. Um, it may be that a person to, to really be comfortable needs a hospital bed. And that hospital bed may not fit in the rooms that are available. Or it may be, and this is a case with a good friend of mine, um, she really wanted to die at home. Um, but in the end, because of the, the children, and the children were very much a, a part of her dying, but it it gave the family a little bit of relief by having her in hospice. You know, it, it just created a little bit more space and helped them transition the children better, help them prepare. Um, it may be that the stairs in an apartment building, for example, won't accommodate um, the, the, the durable equipment, the hospital equipment that is needed to care right. well for a dying person. So, so there are all these different reasons. So I don't want, you know, I don't want anyone to feel judged uh, for dying in an institution because there are very practical reasons why that might make sense. 
At the same time, I lay this out because most people don't die the way they want to, and so they need to anticipate what that means. And it may mean, and this is what we did also with coronavirus, Greg, is we called up some of our sickest patients and let them know that if they did get coronavirus, their family members would not be able to visit them in the hospital because we had such policies at the time, at the peak of the virus. Right. And if you want to die, you know, holding your loved one's hands, um, then you need to think about where you would be. And, that, you know, similar policies and conversations were had at nursing homes as well. So there, there's lots of tricky factors here. But the, again, the premise of my book is let's anticipate this stuff and plan now before we find ourselves in circumstances that we, that we do not want. Lydia, do you believe that you and your fellow physician colleagues um, having, uh, you know, the, you know, look at the profession you've chosen. Um, I wouldn't say immune to death, but you, you take a completely different viewpoint of death. Um, I think because you see it more often than most of the average people. And you state that we fear what we cannot control. So when we feel threatened, we either fight back or we run, the fight or flight. How, how is it that in, we run from death, but physicians, as we talked about in this assisted suicide, it's a very controversial subject. Why do you believe that this is so and what can people do to come to grips with their ultimate demise? Because um, I know Oregon has it. I think California has it where I live now. I don't know Mm -hmm. about New York, Um, but how many people are actually utilizing it? Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. So this is not a major focus of my book at all, but it's worth mentioning because it's something that's on people's minds. But interestingly, it's much more, on people's minds than it is actually undertaken in reality. So it's only a tiny, tiny percentage of people in the United States who die by lethal ingestion. Um, but, you know, what was uh, traditionally called physician-assisted suicide and, and now is often referred by different um, other other names such as aid in dying or medical aid in dying typically refers to when a physician in a state where it is legal, and there's only, you know, um, I, maybe the number's eight or nine states now where it is legal, um, a physician writes a prescription for a patient, typically who has a prognosis of less than six months, um, with, you know, who is, who is essentially dying. Um, and the physician writes that lethal prescription, and then the, really the part that is supposed to serve as a safeguard is that the patient then has to self-ingest. Uh, the concern being that, you know, f- family members or other people who have an interest in whatever, uh, the, the estate or otherwise might force those medications on somebody. So so the idea really is that it has to be an autonomous um, act. Now, you asked why is this uh, controversial? And I think it's controversial for, for many reasons, but uh, probably a couple of fundamental reasons, things that most people can get behind is um, is this idea that we that that we meaning people in society should not take life into our own hands right so whether that is our doctors should not kill patients right we, we don't 
want to entrust ourselves to physicians who are also killers. And there are, there are a couple of popular books out by this, the similar titles, I think Doctors as Killers or something. You know, so there's this idea in the public imagination that, that, uh, that, that when we're sick and vulnerable, we should be able to trust our physicians. And, and I, I think for me as a doctor who takes care of largely older patients, um, that's something that I, I definitely understand uh, is a concern for my patients. They need to know that they can trust me. Um, so, so that idea of trusting the doctor, but also as a society, we've taken this huge uh, stand against conventional suicide, um, which claims many, many, you know, many, many lives a year. And there's some data that show that as in states where medical aid in dying or physician-assisted suicide has been legalized, there has been a corollary increase in conventional suicide. Now, you know, that's not causal. It's just a correlation. But so people have concerns about these things. Like if we legalize it, are we going to see more people die by suicide? Those kinds of things. Um, so I think those those are, I mean, there are many, it's a complicated question. And there are many, many reasons. Um, but those are a couple of the big reasons why people there's some pause about this. This isn't what doctors should do. We, you know, we, some people use the language, we shouldn't play God. We, you know, thou shalt not kill is one of the 10 commandments. This kind of language really gives people cause for concern. Yeah. It is like, it's something that could be debate debated forever. Um, That's and right. I'm not certain there would ever be a conclusion to it. The question is, is are people open to speaking about it? I, I obviously these laws, have been debated, the, especially the states that have passed them, um, took a long time to, to get those yeah. to, to get passed. Um, yeah. Now you state that one of the problems you often deal with as a physician who interacts with patients in secular healthcare settings is whether a non-specific spirituality suffices to address the existential uh, qualms of patients. And you cited a book by Professor Robert Fuller um, that I thought was fascinating. He argues in the book, spirituality, but not religious. Could you kind of highlight that section a bit? Because, you know, look, you're you're meeting all kinds of uh, patients with different religious backgrounds, Jews and Christians and Muslims and, you know, and their beliefs about how they die and how quickly they get buried and all these kind of things. Um, address how that might be as a physician and Fuller's viewpoint on where we're going spiritually versus uh, religion. Right. So Professor Fuller in his book, Spiritual But Not Religious, uh, he argues that in his view, conventional church going just is not an option for millions of Americans. Um, and he says, you know, unchurched spiritual traditions, so the non sort of conventional um, but still spiritual traditions provide beliefs and practices that help the spiritual but not religious still reject this purely materialistic view of life. So he's, he is arguing for a spirituality, and he's saying this is a spirituality that makes sense to a lot of people. It might be a kind of mysticism. It might be an inner source of spirituality. It might be unorthodox. He says that this is different from what he calls a secular non-religious viewpoint because the spiritual but not religious still maintain that we're embedded in a spiritual universe and that the purpose of life 
um, on this account is to find harmony within the spiritual realm. And so I raised this in the book. I have a chapter on spirituality and I set it up with this. You know, this is where so many people are. Um, is this enough? Does this satisfy our sort of deepest spiritual hankerings? And some people, as you stated, Greg, you know, in my work as a doctor, some people find that this is absolutely enough for them. And other people take a turn to um, what you might say is more conventional religion to some of the um, the doctrines that have been worked out over time that that give a sort of a more maybe a more specific or a more unified uh, explanation for life and death and the afterlife. So. In the book, I, I start with the spiritual but not religious, and I sort of move into, you know, is this enough? And for some people, it, it definitely is not enough. And so my book on the subject of spirituality and religion is not at all prescriptive. I'm not right. telling people what I think they should believe. Right, but what right. I'm encouraging people to do is to ask these questions for themselves and to think through this, again, within the context of community. You know, what what do I believe? Why am I here where am I going? What is this life for? And how do I want to live differently so that I die well? Well, dying well is the point of the book. And if you were to provide, and kind of wrapping up our interview here, our listeners uh, with with some insights about dying well, what would you tell them? And how can they transition to a better understanding of dying well? It isn't something people talk about daily. So for them to pick up your book and even read it um, might be challenging for some, but a lot of people will listen to a podcast with somebody and say, Hey, she had great insight. I'll go get the book. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So what would you advice would you give them from someone who's spent much of their life um, not only personally involved in this. So you have firsthand experience, but studying it, looking at past volumes all the way back to the 15th century about this and then moving forward to today, the 21st century about what they could do. So the very, the very basic level, when we think about an art of dying, if we were to take the lowest common denominator, that is that we need to acknowledge our finitude, our finiteness within the context of community. This is a group effort. You know, it takes a village to die well. And so that's kind of 101. But beyond that, then we start, we start moving into both the sort of very physical, um, medical realm of, of living and dying well, and also then the spiritual or existential realm. So it, within the physical realm, thinking about where one wants to die or how one wants to engage the healthcare system, the limits on that, the possible limits on that. I mean, in the case of my grandfather, you know, by the time he hit his early 90s, he was sort of, you know, regularly going to the hospital for constipation. And we figured out a a more aggressive form of, you know, medications he could take at home to prevent these emergency room visits. And we just said, you know, we we talked with the um, place where he was living and, and put in orders not to have him return to the hospital unless there was some very, very compelling reason. We didn't want him to end up living out his days in the hospital over constipation. And again, I've seen that for so many small reasons, older folks end up in the hospital and that's not where they want to be. So, so thinking about how we want to engage, do we want to be DNR? 
do we want to have CPR, all of these questions. But then there's also, so that's the very physical, the material biological questions, but then there's also um, the existential realm, which is uh, addressing these big questions. What does this mean? What is this life all about? And do I need to give some attention to that? Are there specific rituals that can guide me through uncertain times? That's really how rituals developed. They developed mm -hmm. to provide structure in unprecedented times. And so the rituals, I, reading the history of rituals related to dying and death is absolutely fascinating. There's so much that we've forgotten and there's so much that we can recover. Uh, so to, just to attend to these questions in the context of community, community I think we'll do so much for people to be much better prepared. And then they'll find that their living is better. And as they live well, then they too will die well. And that's the hope. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people now, it's about the celebration of one's life. And I'm not certain mm -hmm. that there is um, an age limit on that, no matter how young they die or how old they die. It's really looking at how well they lived. And I think that that's the important point here. And, um, you know, it just reminds me of kind of what the Indians do. As soon as you're in India, the body is then burnt and, you know, they're literally sent down the the Ganges River, right? So um, mm. fascinating, the various traditions, the various religious traditions that look at death in a different way and the celebration of life. And I think that's what your book does is allow us to give a different viewpoint um, and to contemplate this and to prepare for it, as you said, depending on what your belief is. So I'm going to recommend all my listeners go out and get the book. We'll have a link to Amazon. It's The Lost Art of Dying, Re Reviving Forgotten Wisdom. And we have been on with Dr. Lydia Dugdale, MD, from New York about this book. Um, we'll definitely put links to also to her website, which you can find that just at Lydia Dugdale. That's L-Y-D-I-A-D-U-G-D-A-L-E.com. There you can find more about the book. Uh, you also can pre-order the book there um, at that time. Um, the book is out now, though. Is that correct, Lydia? July 7th. So July almost. July 7th. Right. Yeah. But they can pre-order it from Amazon. They can pre-order. So, That's right. Yes. So Watch. we appreciate you being on with us and spending a little time with our listeners and sharing your insight and your wisdom uh, about the lost art of dying. Thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you so much, Greg. It was a pleasure.